The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're very welcome back to the show. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock, and gives me great pleasure to say that Aina Nilauna is with me in studio for the Thursday interview. The biologist, environmentalist, broadcaster, and author. Latest book in front of us, Aina. That's right. Congratulations. It's my first foray into children's books. It's called Wonders of the Wild, and it's a book about. All the things people are told wrong about wildlife. Oh, example, give me an example, well, yeah. You know, squirrels. Would we see squirrels at this time of the year in the middle of February? Uh, I don't know. I assume you would. Good, no? Good. Well, lots of people think they hibernate for the winter, you see, but they don't. I mean, why would you gather nuts in September and then go asleep for six months? That doesn't make any sense at all. And, you know, did you know, did you know that rabbits eat their own poo? Oh, you know, I did know that. And how I know that is because I have a friend of mine and he has an awful habit of saying uh, when we were younger, if a fella and a girl kind of were half doing a line, you know what I mean? But they, they kept kind of hooking up, but they never make it serious. He'd always describe your man as a rabbit returning to its own waste. I see. Isn't that an awful, not an awful description? Describe. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I don't know where even to begin commenting on that, one, for example. Oh, yeah, but there's lots, there's lots of things. I mean, frogs, frogs do overwinter. They hibernate for the winter and they'll go down to the bottom of ponds yeah. and they stay down there. How come they don't drown? Yeah, how come they don't? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, nobody ever tells you these things because they're amphibians. And amphibians can live on land and they have lungs when they're on land. But what do they do under the water? How do they get enough oxygen? Shinny on cash that they haven't got gills. And my book tells you it goes in through their skin. Oh, they so they just absorb skin. it. They just take enough oxygen out of the water to keep them ticking over and that's how they don't drown. Wow. And what about kingfishers? What about things like herons? They feed on fish and neither bird can swim. God must be having a laugh the day he made them. He said, you have to eat fish, but you can't swim. You know, I mean, it's a bit mean, isn't it? It the is. Old, the poor old kingfish has to sit up in a tree and dive down and grab a fish going by and then get back up before So uh, the kingfisher will jump down through the water, yeah, when it grab leaves. the fish, yeah. and then just... It fl- and get the hell out of there, back up gets on out. the perch. Yeah. Can't swim. Can't swim. No, it'll drown if it doesn't get out. It hasn't even got waterproof feathers. I mean, what's the design? I mean, there you go. So anyway, there's loads of lashings of all that sort of stuff in my book. And the people who buy it for their children, they said, I never knew that. I never knew this. I never knew that. So really, while it's ostensibly for children mm. from the ages of, I suppose, 10 to 15, it's for everybody, essentially. Can I give you a piece of... Uh Animal information then. Not too by all means. So uh, my kids are in national school and uh, my son, they're learning about uh, in history kind of the Neolithic people and the first people in Ireland. And they learn, it's part of the curriculum, that uh, the early people, they hunted uh, birds, fish and rabbits. Of course, they didn't hunt rabbits. Because there were no rabbits. There was no rabbits. They didn't come until the Normans brought them. I sent him into school and I said that and the teacher said tell your father to keep his beak out of the national curriculum. They they had squirrels being (laughs) hibernating in the school books as well. I mean just because it's written in the school book doesn't mean that it's right. I mean to this day teachers tell the kids that that they can't you know they can't study frogs because it's against the law. It isn't against the law. There's a derogation for every school in the country to have tadpoles to have frogs spawn in tanks in school. It's written on the website the National Parks and Wildlife Service give a derogation every year but the teachers don't want to do it and it suits them very well to say oh it's against the law it's not against the law you can study frogs to your heart's content Oh God we're really having a go with the teachers so they're teaching them the wrong thing and they don't want to mess in the classroom 
well, they're not doing the frogs and you're telling me what the teacher says about <laughs> rabbit. And I've seen them myself saying squirrels don't hibernate. But then a primary school teaching job is a very difficult one because you have it to is. be the greatest living expert in Irish and English and sums and maths and biology and all of these things that are on the curriculum. I mean, it's a very difficult job, which is why I never wanted to be a national school teacher. Did you teacher. never want to be, no? My never father harbored. was a national school teacher. Okay. My aunt was a national school teacher and my brother and my sister. And I decided at a very early age I was not going to be a national school teacher and so I wasn't. I just got a job teaching teachers instead. So what did you study then after school? After school I went to university in the good old days before you had to have points and everything else and yeah. you could go up there and you could stand in whatever queue you liked. You could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, you could be whatever queue you joined on to and I wanted to do science. Now we had done no science in school. I went to a girls school. We did Latin and French. Yeah. I'm very well educated in those areas but no science. So I went to college and did science. Stood up in the science queue and went off and did physics and chemistry and biology, not biology, botany. And so I qualified then in, in botany and micro biology and went on to do postgraduate work in plant ecology and that sort of thing. So technically, I'm a botanist. Technically a botanist, but an expert in lots of other areas. What was the ambition then when you studied, when you kind of were a botanist, fresh out of college, what did you want to do? I get a job, but there were none. So I went back and did three more years postgraduate work and did a PhD on the salt marshes and sand dunes of North County, Dublin. And then in 1974, I was finished that. And lo and behold, there was a job going for a year charge of the Biological Record Centre in Unforest Forbaha. Unforest Forbaha was the research body of um, the Department of Lands, as it was called yeah. then, in a sense. I mean, it's now DPA, I suppose. Yeah. And I got a job there. And sure, when you get a one-year job and you get your toe in the door, there you are. And I was there for 14 years drawing maps of the distribution of plants and animals in Ireland. Nobody knew anything about those. So then I had to encourage people to go out and send me in records mm. and I would make distribution maps. And the most common animal in Ireland was the badger. Everybody knew a badger. There's all one dead in the road that told me about it. There was no rats anywhere. There were no mice anyway. I never got records of those even though the country was crawling with them. So my maps were distribution maps of records I received rather than anything else. And then in 1988 the good old Charlie Hart, you remember him, decided we were all living above our means mm. and we must tighten our belts and so Forest Furbaha was abolished. Gone. The whole lot, all the record centre, everything else, gone. 88 now, we're long in Europe, we're supposed to be doing environmental impact studies and yeah. everything else. It was all paused and it was the 1990s before the EPA was actually set up and the uh, 20 years after 1988, they set up the National Biodiversity Centre, which was the modern iteration of the Biological Record Centre. And that's going from strength to strength. It's down in Waterford yeah. and they've lots of staff and the people of Ireland can send in pictures with their records and it's it's going really well. So that was where I ended up. So I was abolished. I was abolished in 88, given a, given a pension. I must have been one of the few people in Ireland with an old age pension and children's allowance at the same time. <clears throat> then I went to work in Bolton Street, as it was then the and I lectured there for 20 years in sustainable development, environmental management. We did. I had master's students and we used to go abroad each year on field trips to see how Europe was coping yeah. with, with the Green Revolution, if you like. And that was that was great, you know. And 88 then is when you first ended up on telly as well, is it? I mean, I used to appear on the radio, you know, talking about crocodile, not crocodile so much, dragonflies and things like this. Yeah. And you're only as good as your last gig. And I made people laugh. And then and then in 1990, a young scutcher called Derek Mooney got a job doing wildlife programmes and he was looking for a balance. He wanted a woman as well as a man's voice. Okay. 
But where would you get a woman in 1990? He looked in the book. RTE at those days had a book of women who could do things. So he looked in the book of women who could do things. There was Nell McCafferty she could talk about. There was Maeve Binchy. And there under wildlife was Aileen Nilauna. She could talk about wildlife. So he rang me up and said, will you come in? They actually and had I, a book, Women Who Can Do yeah, Things. Yeah, you didn't need a book about men because obviously patently men could do everything. One didn't need well, for this those. This is true, this is true. But there was a book of women who could do things. And you weren't in the book, but then obviously you couldn't do you anything. You couldn't do anything, yeah. Apparently not. So I got in and I was there then. And of course I could do things. And 20, whatever, nearly 30 years later, I'm still talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and all the rest of it. Because when you're good at something, Derek didn't bother looking for anybody else. He didn't need to. So Mooney Goes Wild has been on the air since 90, oh, since the beginning of the 1990s, nearly 30 years on the air now. Mm. And how many times, you were on the Late Late then as well with Gabo? Were you on the original Late Late? Well, if the original Late Late is Gay Borden, then I was. Yes, I was on with Gay. At one point, Gay was having all kinds of wonderful Late Late's about the Bishop of Galway and Annie Murphy and everything else. So I wasn't going to be interrogated like this. So I arrived in with all my jam jars and my spiders. I was on first, Eric. I was on with with, with, um, Gay because I was the voice in the morning time doing the Mooney Goes Wild thing. And now here I was. And we had been doing the Dawn Chorus and this sort of thing. So here he presented me anyway. And and of course, I was afraid in my life he'd be saying, I am not interested in those things tell me about something else because Jerry Ryan had done it to me a couple of weeks earlier. I was supposed to be on with Jerry Ryan talking about animals that smiled or something and when yeah. I came on to that Jerry, Jerry Ryan can't be good to him now said oh, I'm not interested in animals who smile you know were you ever were you ever in Michael Jackson's house or something you had Michael Jackson you put on about this. <laughs> I said I have no interest or anything in Michael Jackson and this all and then the programme was over so I, I decided I was doing more television but anyway he mollified me anyway and he was saying what you got in the jar and I was showing him my spiders and poor old gay nearly left out of his skin. He was terrified of spiders. Was he? He was, yeah. And the audience loved it. He was afraid I'd open them and take them out and give him one, you know. So it was all great, a frisson altogether. And the audience were great and it was a live audience and it worked really well. And of course, once you... I wasn't you too, not quite. But once you make it on the Late Late Show, you're... Oh, you you made it everywhere. You're beginning to... And did you get a kick out of it, yeah? Yeah, you get a great buzz. You get a great buzz out of when you're on live. I mean, most of the stuff I do is actually live because it's the best way to do things. They can't edit it. They can't take out things, you know. (laughs) The thing is that that's what happens. So it's a great buzz. The light goes on, you're on and that's it. And you have the whole world to hear you or not hear you as the case may be. How have attitudes about... Um, kind of biodiversity and nature and ecology and everything else in this country changed over the years since you've been working in the area? You'd wonder now, you'd wonder. I mean, I'm like the fellow in Dawson Street doing this for more years than I care to remember. And I wonder, do people know less and less rather than more? Really? I would think after 40 years, loads of people would know loads of stuff. Mm. But I was just thinking about that the other day and I was just thinking the people that used to know loads of stuff were the people that communicated with me and they went to an effort. There was no, you didn't have emails, you didn't vote me letters, they sent in things. So the people who were interested and knew stuff were communicating with me. But now anyone can do it. Anybody that's anybody can look at something. So if you see something walking across the floor, you can take a picture, you can look at it on your mobile phone and you can decide that this was only ever seen once before in Patagonia in South America. And how come this is suddenly in the studio here? Mm. Because people Google stuff, they don't realise, they don't care, they don't have any critical faculties at all that Google is more or less based on stuff in North America. And therefore, if you're told something is in Patagonia, 
and you're here in Ireland. I mean, it would not occur to you for one millisecond that perhaps <laughs> it's wrong. Perhaps you're, uh, there is something wrong with this. I mean, I got a thing the other day. I mean, I write the stuff now for the Irish Times yeah. since Michael Viney um, gave up his column and then subsequently died. And I'm, I'm doing that now and it's grand. And people send in all kinds of questions. Got a picture in recently of a, of a what would you call it, um, a little gold crest, tiny little yeah. bird, smallest bird in Ireland, a couple of grams. And the fellow had said, this is a kinglet a kinglet bird that only occurs in North America. How did this arrive in Ireland? And it never occurred to him that perhaps it wasn't a kinglet. I mean, did he not try and look up Ireland or even the British Isles or even Britain? No, no, he just put in the picture of the bird and said it was a kinglet that occurs in North America, flies about 10 yards around the place and suddenly ends up in Ireland. So that's what I wonder about. Do people, you know, I mean, do people know any more? It seems to me they, their critical faculties have entirely evaporated. If you told them the sky was pink with blue spots, they would believe it because it says it on the phone rather than looking out the window to actually see yeah. is the sky pink with blue spots. Are people less engaged or are they as engaged but just uh, less critical thinking? They have the attention span of a cricket. I mean, you're talking to somebody about something and I mean, you hear them saying, just say yes or no. I mean, if you try to explain why something it is, you can see the eyes glazing over, mm. you can see them looking over your shoulder. Hey, she's going on about something, just tell me the answer. You know, that they, they don't want to, a lot of people don't want to engage in the wherewithal. They just want, they don't want to believe that we, we've destroyed the world, that we've changed the climate, that involved you know, this involves us having to change the way we live in order to fix it. They don't want to know that somebody else will do it. They won't engage. And, you know, it's not fair, really, because we've made the bags of it, so we should be fixing it. And do you think we've made the bags of it here in this country as well? Well, of course we have. I mean, we're, we put up as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as 55 million people in Africa. I mean, we think there's only five million of us here. It doesn't matter. I mean, we we are the second greatest polluters in Europe from a point of view of recycling, from a point of view of carbon emissions. Of course, we've made the bags of it here. Just because there's only a few of us, you can't be saying, oh, there's more people in India, there's more people in China. Mm. If we lived like the way they live in those countries, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't make a, a drop in the ocean with the amount of carbon we're putting up in the air. Of course, we've made the bags of it, yeah. Have we made the bags of our own local environment? Well, it depends on where our own local environment well, is. I mean, I in the country or the countryside. Yeah, I mean, 60, like 60% of Ireland is covered in grassland. Yeah. And we've changed completely from haymaking to making silage. And if you give your grass a haircut in May, then there's no plants, no flowers, no nothing. If you spray because you have to grow your crops, if you have to put nitrogen in in order for the grass to grow, yeah. that's all having an impact on our waters. So we had we had qualities of waters from absolutely excellent to good to decent to middle and to terrible. Mm. Now, the terribles are probably all gone, but so are the excellents. So we don't, we have very few pristine waters anymore. Yeah. The top quality is gone. We have nothing ground nesting. We Our corncrakes are practically gone. Our curlew are practically gone. Wendy Galassia, Yellowhammer, for example, if you have no flowers, if you've got no insects, mm. then you, because you've been spraying. I mean, even in Europe, the pesticides directive that they were bringing in to reduce them by fifty percent has been scotched because of the lobby of the of the, the farmers who are saying yeah. you need to have these pesticides in, and the bees are getting the fallout of it. I mean, I launched a, a bee um, a bee display, a bee a bee presentation in. 
Mayo yesterday over in the in the it's a wonderful museum and the museum of Irish folklore there in Turlock. Oh, I saw Mayo. it in the paper this yeah, morning. And yeah, they have a wonderful exhibition of the bees. Not just the bees as such, like a science woman, the bees there, but the whole social fabric of this from the Brehan laws when bees came in, rules about them in the Brehan law, Saint Gobnet, the lovely Harry Clark window that's over in the Honan Chapel in Cork, yeah. showing this, and the whole business of embroidery, lovely um, Waterford glass, crystal, all of the impact that bees had on Ireland all the way along. You know, and I mean, we have reduced most of those bees to endangered status because there's no flowers for them to feed on, because pesticides that isn't intended for the bees, intended for pests of crops, is sprayed willy-nilly and it impacts Mm. impacts on everything else. So we farm, we farm, we produce huge amounts of cattle and we export 95% of it. It's not that we're eating all those cows. Yeah. But it's what... Um, the same with the milk. It's, it's it's all for export. What we eat in Ireland and what we drink in Ireland in line of milk is very little to compare to what the farmers produce. And they'll say they feed Europe on a more ecologically sustainable way than having them in feedlots yeah. and sheds in, in Brazil, which may very well be the case. But the impact it's having on Ireland is terrible. Our biodiversity has gone down by 50% since 1970. I mean, I was working in 1970 yeah. and we have half as much wildlife now as we had then. And not, not half species, but less of everything. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. And are you are then pessimistic for the future of it? Or do you think like some of the regulations you mentioned, despite the fact that they've been put on ice for a while on the foot of those farmers' protests, that they'll actually have a positive impact in the long run? I mean, there's no point in being pessimistic. Go, Kono, go, Kono, we'll all be ruined, says Hanrahan, before the year is out. Where's that going to get us? Now, we well, have... you were fairly pessimistic 20 seconds ago oh, about no, no, the no, state of I mean, the place I'm at the moment. I'm telling you what it's like. But I mean, can we fix it? Yes, we can. We have the least amount of trees in Europe. In the EU, 11% of the country is covered in trees. And yet, we have the most stringent laws against planting trees. You cannot plant more than a quarter of an acre not a hectare, a quarter of an acre of trees without having to get a, a permission to do so, a planting permission. And then you have to apply for that, you have to get a forester to sign it, you have to send it into the department, you have to wait to get it. To plant more than a quarter hectare of trees, or a quarter acre. acre of trees, yeah, never mind anything else. And, and why is that allowed? Why are people saying nothing about it? Why are we not protesting about this? You know, we're always saying, go out and plant trees. Who's planting a million trees? Somebody else is planting three million trees. And I wonder, are they? Where are they planting the trees? Have they permission for where's the land where are the trees why do we still only have 11% of the country I mean I was the president of the Tree Council of Ireland for the last while I'm replaced now because it's a three year gig and mm. Paul McDowney is doing a wonderful job we're having National Tree Week coming up now it's beginning of March and that'll be a whole other time of promoting trees but we still only have the 11% of the country covered in trees that we had in the 1990s where are the trees and why are we not up and down saying plant more trees I mean if everybody is so engaged and we all think trees are wonderful why are we still with this ridiculous draconian law that says we need permission to plant more than a quarter of an acre it's ridiculous it is ridiculous. Wonders of the Wild is the name of Aina's new book, Aina Nilauna. An absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for coming in. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.